Welcome to Cato Audio for January 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. In this first offering of the new year, we present several portions of the Cato Institute's 29th Annual Monetary Conference held in November. We'll get comments from George Mason University's Lawrence White, talking about a return to the gold standard. Author Kevin Dowd talks about the coming fiat money cataclysm. Congressman Ron Paul discusses his approach to the Federal Reserve. Author Judy Shelton talks monetary reform. And Richmond Federal Reserve President Jeffrey Lacker talks about the Federal Reserve's recent role in allocating credit. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. In 2012, the GOP will nominate a uh, candidate for president to take on President Obama in November 2012 for the election of president. And uh, I think the it's safe to say that the GOP, at least with uh, some of their candidates, have gone a little bit astray when it comes to issues of free trade and immigration. And I'm here to talk about those issues from the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies, Dan Eikenson is Associate Director, and Dan Griswold is the director and author of the book Mad About Trade. Gentlemen, welcome. So just to get started here, as we talk about trade, Dan Eikenson, I guess where do we stand here in the United States today? You've written some pieces on uh, anti-dumping, countervailing duties, China's ascent in the World Trade Organization, and of course, President Obama's, with the help of Congress, imposing some tariffs and other, I guess, small-time protectionist measures. Uh, where are we right now in terms of the relative freedom of trade? Well, I think we are a freer nation now than we were decades ago, but not much freer than we were six years ago, for example. I think the liberalization or the consensus to liberalize trade sort of broke down during the Bush administration. And since 2007, when the Democratic Party took control of Congress, the trade agenda was sort of sidelined for several years. There were some trade bilateral trade agreements, one with Colombia, one with Korea, one with Panama that had been sidelined. There were lots of demands being issued by the Democratic Congress that uh, were being met with respect to labor standards and environmental standards, but uh, new lines in the sand were continuously drawn. and. Ultimately, these agreements never made it to see the light of day until finally this year. So we've just passed three trade agreements that will be implemented in 2012. The biggest initiative of the past decade to free trade further was the Doha Round. I've been calling it in a cryogenic state for about seven or eight years. Um, It is pretty dead, but uh, trade ministers and uh, trade diplomats and the trade bureaucrats in Washington and Geneva and Brussels are unwilling to call it dead. Nobody wants this to die on their watch. And they have budgets, of course, that they they want to see filled to pursue this mission. But the administration over the past year, year and a half, has also been pursuing at different paces this Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which is an agreement with a bunch of countries that border the Pacific, which is being touted as sort of the next model for the 21st century. To me, The emphasis of the administration really, though, has been on enforcement more than trade liberalization. And, you know, I don't really see a problem with holding our trade partners' feet to the fire. If they've made commitments to open their markets, they should do so. If our exporters are having problems, there should be some recourse. But enforcement has also included measures to close the U.S. market to imports, and that I have a much bigger problem with. And I think 2012 promises to be problematic with respect to more trade barriers. Yeah, I think Dan's exactly right. You know, there's a lot in the world not going well from a Cato perspective, government spending and debt and Obamacare and all that. Let's take stock of some good news. You know, Dan's right. The Doha round is in a a coma. But in the last decade, even with the Great Recession, global trade volumes are up over 40 percent. 2011 turned out to be actually a pretty good year for U.S. trade policy. We're kind of back on the offensive now with a slow ground game, but we're making advancements. We passed the three free trade agreements, which are going to liberate another $12, $14 billion in trade. 
The Obama administration, to its credit, uh, found a way to work out a dispute with Mexico over allowing safety-certified trucks to roll on U.S. roads, and that got some sanctions removed. I think the president and his national export initiative uh, helped the president frame trade and move forward. But the Republicans taking over the House really helped get the trade agenda back on track because the Democratic House were very much uh, in thrall to organize labor, and they bottled up these trade agreements. Once the Republicans took over, all of a sudden the agreements could be passed, and they passed. And another interesting thing is how overwhelmingly the Republicans supported trade agreements. I think the Pat Buchanan, Ross Perot, Jerome Corsi protectionist wing of the Republican Party is about as dead as the Doha round. And the Tea Party movement, people wondered about these Tea Party people. What They're, they're good on spending and taxes. How are they going to be on trade? Well, it turns out of the uh, four score and seven uh, freshman Republicans, many of them with Tea Party connections, they voted overwhelmingly in favor of free trade. And you had only a minority of Democrats, but uh, anywhere from uh, in the House, uh, 30 to 60 Democrats voting for these agreements. So it shows that legislation can pass, bipartisan legislation, to reduce the size and scope of government on Americans. So let's accept some good news uh, when it happens. As far as 2012, I agree with Dan, there isn't going to be a whole lot going on there. Russia is going to join the World Trade Organization. They are the only G20 member that has been outside. The question is, is the Congress going to repeal the Jackson-Vanik Amendment, which basically says if you're a communist or former communist country, you can't have normal trade relations as long as if you don't let Jews emigrate freely. Well, that hasn't been an issue for 20 years or more, and yet that law is still on the books. So we'll see if we're going to realize the full benefits of Russia's entry into the WTO. That's probably one of the bigger issues of 2012. Dan Eikenson, one of the strongest points that you make on a consistent basis is one fact that I think clears out a lot of bad thinking on the subject of trade policy. And it's not a conceptual issue. It's just a practical matter. And it is that more than half of what is imported into the United States is stuff that Americans use to make other stuff. Right. I don't think that can be stressed enough. Well, it's the skunk at the garden party when it's brought up in the context of trade policy. Our policymakers, the lobbies that affect trade policy, think only in terms of expanding revenues for businesses. And that means that's equated to opening markets abroad, and therefore we need to have more trade agreements. Very few of them think about the other component of the profit equation, which is cost. And our exporters, before they are exporters, are producers. And as producers, they have costs, and those costs are affected by the availability and prices of imports. But Nobody brings up in a polite conversation the idea that maybe we just need to unilaterally get rid of these import duties. Last year, Customs and Border Protection collected about $32 billion of duties. About $20 billion of them, of those duties, were on intermediate goods, the ingredients of U.S. production. If, as President Obama has said, he wants to see U.S. businesses become more competitive at home and abroad, and I think that is a goal shared by most people, we should consider getting rid of these import duties for certain. Trade, though, is cast in this kind of context with a scoreboard metaphor, right? Exports are our team's points, imports are their team's points, and it's very hard to sort of break that mold. And it's always on display with respect to China. And to me, that's the big elephant in the room in 2012. And, and uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. And I guess we can talk about that more as... Yeah, just two quick examples. We have quotas on imported sugar. That's good for sugar producers, but it's caused the loss of thousands of manufacturing jobs, a lot of them around the Chicago area, in confectionery and other sugar-using industries. Steel's another one. You know, all sorts of products from cars to machinery use steel. We've got uh, anti-dumping orders and other things on imported steel, and that makes it harder to produce products uh, competitively here in the United States. And then then there's the dollar. You know, it's just accepted wisdom that a weaker dollar is good for exporters and that's good for jobs. Well, a weaker dollar also means U.S. producers pay more for energy and other imported goods. So that's a big message of the Center for Trade Policy Studies that really nobody else in Washington, certainly not as systematically as we do, talks about the benefits of imports to consumers, lower prices, more choice, 
more variety and quality. But for producers, it's an important part for American companies in their competition with the rest of the world. And in a lot of ways, uh, being able to devote a lower share of their budgets to some big ticket items that the United States does not make at all. I mean, this discussion also helps put proper light on the U.S.-China economic relationship. We import a lot from China. We have a trade deficit with China because the final value of manufactured products coming from China is all attributed to China, when in fact much of that value is should be attributed to U.S. production, Japanese production, Australian minerals, and Brazilian iron ore. But about 50% of the value of U.S. imports from China is actually Chinese value added. So when we import, we are not only supporting consumers and import consuming firms, but we are supporting jobs up and down the supply chain, engineering jobs at Apple and designers and marketers and retailers and truckers and warehousers. So we need to break the instinct of thinking that imports are the other team's points. When we talk about uh intermediate goods coming into the United States. The United States does have remaining these policies, basically making it more difficult to get a lot of these products into the U.S. And that has had some pretty profound effects on what otherwise would have been or could be some pretty big industries in the United States. Well, yes, the United States and many other countries have so-called trade remedies laws, the anti-dumping law and the countervailing duty law. The anti-dumping law is applied in cases where Injury is caused to a domestic industry by reason of what are considered less than fair value imports. The countervailing duty law is designed to countervail the effects of subsidized imports that injure domestic industries. It's sanctioned protectionism. Under the WTO system, member governments are allowed to have these laws. It doesn't mean that they should use them. It doesn't mean that they should use them the way that they do. There's been a lot of talk of a trade war between the United States and China, and certainly there have been a lot of anti-dumping and countervailing duty cases brought by the United States against China, Chinese exporters, and by China against U.S. exporters in a tit-for-tat sort of fashion. And we need to recognize that this is sanctioned, but it's not a good idea. Just It's, it's not good for the same interests that we've... we've Some countries don't have anti-dumping laws, Hong Kong and other jurisdictions. That's right. And uh, more and more countries should at least not resort to them. In a technical matter, when the United States considers petitions related to anti-dumping, it's my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the interests of people who would be consuming right. these otherwise imported goods, right. you're not allowed to consider the interests of people who want to buy cheaper stuff abroad. Right. The rationalization is that this is a producer's law. Well, it's clearly, <laughs> but 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 it it benefits in the short run petitioning producers often of just upstream products, raw materials like magnesium, like silicon metal, like steel, where there isn't a whole lot of competition in the United States, but there are a lot of downstream users, and those users, like any customer, wants to shop around for the you know the best prices to keep his overall costs in check. The anti-dumping law which Congress has made available to these less than competitive industries, affords them, these industries, the opportunity to say, wait a second, we're injured by this. Even if they're the only producer or there's two producers, we can't allow our customers to have access to competitively priced raw materials. Under the statute, these customers can't make their case before the U.S. International Trade Commission or the U.S. International Trade Commission is not allowed to entertain the impact on their bottom lines or on consumer welfare overall, that really, at a minimum, has to change. And that's something we've been working toward at Cato for a long time. In 2012, one issue that I think, at least in the spring, as we move through Republican primaries, that will be an issue is immigration. Some uh, candidates have staked out some fairly uh, divergent positions when it comes to whether or not we allow, really what we're talking about is instead of goods, labor, crossing borders. Yeah. And so how is that going to play out in the spring and sort of help us understand the various positions of the Republican candidates have played out and how Democrats and Republicans more broadly have dealt with the issue? Or haven't dealt with it. It's going to be a lively political issue. I'm not very optimistic that much good will happen. You know, the, the optimism I shared a moment ago about trade, the cautious optimism, it's not there on immigration. We're in a pretty dismal place. Actually, our immigration system needs to be fixed. Our nation has benefited tremendously from 
immigration over previous decades, legal immigration, and here's where our system needs to be fixed. We are turning away highly skilled people, often been educated here in the United States, foreign-born PhD scientists and engineers would like to work in this country, and we make it difficult for them. We have absurdly low quotas on temporary high-skilled immigration, on employment visas, even tourists who want to come here. The global tourism industry is booming. It's growing. It's grown over 60, uh, by 60 million additional travelers over the last decade. We haven't gotten us any share of that growth, partly because of security concerns after the September 11th terrorist attacks. And of course, we haven't fixed illegal immigration. And here's where the Republican rhetoric is really unfortunate. It's all about enforcement only. There's a kind of unhealthy competition in the Republican primaries as to who can sound the harshest against low-skilled immigration. These immigrants come here because there's work for them. There's work opportunities. The pool of Americans available to do these low-skilled jobs just isn't keeping up with the creation of jobs over the long run. And yet, the Republican Party can't seem to talk at all about moving towards some kind of legalization. Ronald Reagan understood that. He talked about worker visas and uh, recognizing the value of these workers. There are some presidential candidates in the Republican primary that are sounding a little more accommodating towards uh, expanding legal immigration for low-skilled workers, uh, Rick Perry, Newt Gingrich, John Huntsman, but others are engaged in some pretty harsh rhetoric. We've had two decades of enforcement only. It hasn't solved the problem. Our basic position at Cato, and I have commissioned work and done work myself, and it all points in the same direction, and that is if you want to reduce illegal immigration, you have to expand opportunities for legal immigration. We'd all be better off if you create a temporary worker program for low-skilled workers. They'll come in legally through established ports of entry. That's the way to go. And yet Republicans can only talk about more troops at the border, two-tiered fences, uh, electrified, e-verify, which would require native-born U.S. citizens to get permission from a government database. Even some Tea Party groups have raised an issue, raised this issue. Uh, why are Republicans talking about more paperwork, more regulation of the labor market when they should be talking about expanding legal immigration? You mentioned uh, John Huntsman, Rick Perry. Add one to that list, Haley Barber, who uh, is not running for president, but among Republicans who are leaders of the party, perhaps has a more reasonable position. I remember he said that after Katrina, he said, I have a soft spot in my heart for people who want to come to this country and help us rebuild our cities. Yeah, he, he saw how they helped rebuild coastal Mississippi. Where would New Orleans and uh, the Gulf region be without those Hispanic workers who came? And some of them were illegal. That's right. And there's other voices, Jeb Bush and, and others. And you're starting to hear those dissenting voices in the Republican Party say... And these are Southerners. These are isn't, Southerners talking, isn't that interesting? people on the southern border. Th that's right. Sometimes people on the border understand this issue very well. And I think they're raising two issues. One, you're not going to solve this problem by just sending more troops to the border, more regulations of U.S. business, and that way that has failed. But secondly, there's a political issue here too, and that is when Hispanics, even third or fourth generation U.S. citizen Hispanics, hear this harsh rhetoric about immigrants, they see it and somewhat reasonably as questioning their culture, their contributions to American society. It's going to turn off moderates. The Republican Party cannot thrive in the long run if it's not going to appeal to a significant share of the Hispanic base and the sharp, harsh rhetoric in the Republican primaries, I think, is going to make that task more difficult. And for his part, Democrats and President Obama haven't made any moves either. They yeah. had they had control of uh, the House, the Senate, and the presidency for two solid years and did nothing. You know, if I were a cynic, Caleb, I would <laughs> uh, I would say they'd rather have the issue than solve it. Uh, you know, the president uh, gives good speeches and uh, he seems to sound better on the issue. But you know, he had uh, overwhelming majorities in Congress in 2009 and 2010 and did nothing. And now when the Republicans take over the House, all of a sudden he wants to see movement on immigration reform now. And so you put that all together and there just isn't much of an environment. The only glimmer of hope, the House did pass a bill uh, recently that would rearrange the quota system on uh, green cards, permanent residency for employment to allow more workers in from China and India. But they didn't raise the overall cap. We're still starving ourselves of 
high-skilled immigrants who are just going. It's like we hang a sign out and say, if you're well-educated, entrepreneurial, you have skills, go start your business in China or India and create jobs there. We don't want you here. And that's not the right message this country should be sending. And even if people have this attitude, the appropriate attitude that is uh, welcoming high-skilled immigrants in the United States, there is a conceptual problem that a lot of people have regarding low-skilled immigrants, that these yes. people are, while in absolute terms, their marginal product is probably lower than it is for high-skilled immigrants. Yep. Nonetheless, these are people who are you know, lowering the prices of basic services for Americans to spend on other things, to devote their time to other activities. That's exactly right. They make food and services more available. That raises the living standards of tens of millions of Americans. They also have a positive effect on the labor market. They do compete against a small and shrinking share of the American workforce that's out there without a high school diploma, but they're getting it from all sides. Often teenagers. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And that's a shrinking demographic group, by the way, too. But they help create jobs when businesses are able to hire the workers they need, including low-skilled workers. That attracts investment. They can expand their production. That creates jobs up the skill ladder for middle-class Americans who are accountants, managers, salespeople. We published a study in 2009, restriction or legalization. There are other studies that confirm this. These low-skilled immigrants create job opportunities for middle-class Americans. They allow us to move up while the immigrants move in. And that's just David Ricardo, Adam Smith, Economics 101. Is, is, is a very basic point that a lot of people really don't understand. Yeah, which, and it's all the more maddening that uh, Republicans, who a lot of Republicans who say they're in favor of the market and limited government, don't understand the basic laws of supply and demand when it comes to the labor market. That's going to be the last word. Dan Eikenson, Associate Director for the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and Dan Griswold, Director, also author of the Cato book, Mad About Trade. You can read more on trade and follow some of the activities of our trade policy scholars at our website, cato.org. Congressman Ron Paul has been challenging the Federal Reserve for decades. He argues that the institution is immoral and unconstitutional. In his travels throughout the United States, he notes that interest in reforming our monetary regime is higher than ever. Congressman Paul is author of the Cato book, The Case for Gold, available free online at cato.org. You know, I've thought about and uh, have written about the Federal Reserve for a long time. I became fascinated with the monetary issue in the 1960s, having come across uh, the Austrian economists and especially uh, Hayek and uh, Mises. And I was very impressed with August 15, 1971, because the predictions made in the 60s came about. Matter of fact, Henry Hazlitt made that prediction in 1944 when they set up Bretton Woods. He said it wouldn't work and it would fall apart, and it did. So, so that was a strong confirmation. But even after all these years of, of studying and reading and trying to figure out the system, I have come to a very fair and balanced approach uh, to the Federal Reserve. I think uh, there's no doubt that the Federal Reserve is immoral, it's unconstitutional, and it's a disaster, and uh, we don't need it. So with that approach, I have uh, worked hard in the uh, Congress as well, being on, uh, on the financial services or the banking committee at one time, it was called. And from the very first day of being in Congress, I have always been on that committee and uh, now have the position of uh, being the subcommittee chairman for domestic monetary policy. I've always worked on the assumption that the system that replaced the Bretton Woods system in 1971 would not be a good system. It would be much worse. It has been rather impressive that it's lasted this long, but I think the handwriting's on the wall. I think that's what we're facing today, that the uh, dollar reserve standard, which the world has embraced for 40 years, has come to an end. I don't think there's any admission to this yet, and they believe they can patch it up, but uh, I believe it has ended and that the standard, the dollar reserve standard, has ushered in probably the world's biggest financial bubble in all of history. And uh, yet they've still been able to patch it up and keep it together. 
but it seems to me like the total weight of the world financial system relies on a trust, which is a false trust, from my viewpoint, in the dollar, that the dollar will be able to rescue everybody and anybody, whether it's our own treasury, whether it's our state uh, finances, whether it's uh, our cities and towns and around the world and all the banks and all the corporations. And so far, this undertaking hasn't really destroyed the confidence in the dollar. I think one reason when you look at the dollar in comparison to other currencies, of course, over a period of time, the value of the dollar has gone down. But uh, there's still people buying dollars and loaning money to us at, at very low rates. But when you think about the comparison of the currencies, you have to think about what's our competition. And uh, the competition is the euro and uh, some others, so they're not necessarily very strong themselves. But when it comes to the purchasing power, which is the ultimate test of a currency, I don't think we're doing very well. Our government now admits that uh, our consumer prices are going up approximately 4%. But, uh, you know, if you use the old CPI, they're going up more like 8 or 9%. And if you compare cost of living increases for certain individuals versus others, it's much more painful. So if you're on Social Security and uh, this year they get a, a CPI increase, but a couple of years they did not, their standard of living has gone down and it's been much worse for them. So if their cost of living is going up and their standard of living is going down, this is a reflection of the value of the dollar. The Federal Reserve is an institution that uh, was created by the Congress and Congress has been totally derelict in their duties as far as oversight of the Federal Reserve. And uh, I've argued this case along with many liberal Democrats over the years. Their conclusions were different than mine because they didn't uh, argue for constitutional money and commodity money, but they argued that the uh, Congress should have more authority, that the Fed shouldn't act in secrecy. And uh, yet for 100 years, they've essentially been able to act on their own. I'm convinced that uh, in these last few years, we have made tremendous progress, essentially since uh, the collapse of the financial markets in 08, we've gotten a lot more attention to the Fed. Uh, last year, we had a partial audit uh, passed in the Congress. We're getting more information. Lawsuits have helped us get more information. This, to me, is very beneficial. The audit bill uh, was supported approximately a third of the Democrats, and every single Republican signed on to the audit bill. So there's a little bit of effort. But on the Hill, I would say that there's not a whole lot of enthusiasm for what I've been talking about, and there's a lot of political grandstanding and you get some benefits. But where I get more enthusiastic is what's happening in the country, the attention of the people, and especially the young people I talk to on the college campuses, they think this is a big issue and they relate it to, uh, you know, too much spending. So I find this very encouraging. As a matter of fact, the um, first time I came across the enthusiasm on a college campus was in 07. I was speaking uh, at the University of Michigan's uh, uh, on the college campus there right after we had a debate in Michigan on, on financial affairs in the last go-run. And it was there that some of the young students started shouting out, and the Fed, and the Fed. They pulled out Federal Reserve notes and started burning Federal Reserve notes. And I said, you know, the revolution is arriving. There's something very interesting going on. And we literally can get thousands of people out. The other day we had 3,000 people out on a college campus and they know and understand and care about the Federal Reserve System. And I think that's what has to happen and then uh, there will be eventually changes in Congress. We need money that works. And author Judy Shelton says that's a pretty simple proposition. Money, quite simply, should be a credible medium of exchange, a unit of account, and a store of value. The dollar, she argues, falls down on all of these accounts. Maybe it's just me, but I think the need for monetary reform is so critical that every single candidate for president out there should be talking about it. Now, of course, Ron Paul does talk about it. I give him great credit. He speaks very knowledgeably and with real commitment. He actually has a proposal for reforming our current monetary system which is hardly a system, really. It's more just a matter of discretion exercised on an ad hoc basis by a small committee in Washington. But where are the other candidates on this issue? We've heard a few references to hard money or sound money during the televised primary debates. 
we need to rein in the Fed or fire Bernanke, those kind of comments. That doesn't solve it. Are they talking about a monetary rule or limiting the dual mandate or targeting inflation? And would that be much better than what we have now? What we have now is nuance, which is fine if you can spend all your time listening to CNBC so you can dissect the latest communique from the Federal Open Market Committee or listen to a town hall-style session with Bernanke. Not to digress too far, but just to emphasize, there is no monetary system, no mechanism in effect domestically or internationally. There's only the monetary status quo, and that's what needs reforming. But there will be no transition to a new monetary regime until the need for reform is recognized at the highest levels of the U.S. government. How can American voters not consider the failings of monetary policy as a fundamental policy issue? How can they not demand ideas and specific proposals from any prospective president? The world has gone through a credit debacle and financial collapse with devastating consequences for the real economy. The most powerful central bank issuing the most influential currency is located a mile and a half from here. It's a U.S. government agency with its chairman, vice chairman, and entire board of governors all appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. The next American president, whoever it is, should be laying out a path to serious monetary reform, not only for this country, but for the world. Because we haven't fixed anything since this last money meltdown. What has really changed since where we were just before the collapse, let's say June 2008? At that time, the total notional amount of outstanding over-the-counter financial derivatives was $684 trillion, about 12 times the world's gross domestic product. Well, that figure dropped some in the immediate aftermath of the crisis, but the latest numbers show that the notional value of outstanding financial derivatives has now climbed back over $600 trillion. And what has changed on monetary policy itself? Alan Greenspan has been faulted, mocked, for having kept interest rates too low for too long. Maybe he did. He's not omniscient. Now, right there, that is why we need monetary reform, because Fed chairmen, even very, very intelligent Fed chairmen, are not omniscient. Here's the point I want to make about monetary policy, and it relates to inflation. Inflation, as measured by the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, was rather low during those final Greenspan years, 2 to 3 percent, slightly over 3 in 2006 when his term ended, but close enough to what the Fed likes to describe as benign. And so here we are today, with high unemployment, broad fear of falling back into recession, one would expect reduced consumer demand under these conditions. One would not expect price pressure to be coming to bear in these tough times. I mean, why should there be any inflation at all? And yet, the latest annualized inflation rate shows 3.53%. Something is really wrong with the calibration of the money supply to the needs of the real economy, to the level of productive activity. There's a purely speculative game being played out in the financial sector with credit default swaps with massive levels of derivatives, two-thirds of them linked to gaming the differential interest rate policies of the Federal Reserve against the European Central Bank or just betting on currencies. We see from one day to the next, the Dow Jones Industrial Average jump 200 points, fall 200 points, back up 200 points. Same for the FTSE or the Nikkei. Responding to this global kabuki theater of frantic meetings among finance ministers and the latest pronouncements from central bankers. The real economy doesn't bounce around like that. It's more like a slow-moving barge with 7 billion people aboard but it's being whipsawed by these monetary policy-driven events, which almost seem to belong to a different stratum. You think, those guys should be playing with tokens, with casino chips, 
that can only be used to chase paper profits in financial markets. The rest of us just need money that works. We need money that, one, provides a useful medium of exchange. For me, that means on a global basis. I happen to believe in free trade. Two, we need money that functions as a meaningful unit of account. That means across borders and through time. And three, speaking of time, we need money that serves as a store of value, not money that loses 3.53% of its purchasing power in a slow year. Really, should prices be going up over 3.5% in 2011 when 9 out of 10 Americans believe we're still in a recession? This disconnect between monetary policy and the real economy goes to the core of my presentation for this conference. I contend that reliable money is absolutely the key to having a free market economy operate at optimal levels. It's such a critical tool for measuring value, whether you're consumer or producer, investor or entrepreneur, creditor or debtor. Money has to be dependable and accurate because money gives voice to the market by conveying the price signals that allow people to make rational decisions. The Federal Reserve has dramatically expanded its balance sheet and its authority since the start of the financial crisis. And in doing so, the central bank has gotten into many activities that we should reserve to the marketplace. Jeffrey Lacker, the president of the Richmond Federal Reserve, says the credit allocation of the Federal Reserve may have been done in earnest, but it has significant costs. The Fed's response during the financial crisis was not purely monetary, however. In the first phase, from the fall of 2007 through the summer of 2008, its credit actions were sterilized. That is to say, lending through the term auction facility uh, beginning in January of 2008, and lending in support of the merger of Bear Stearns and J.P. Morgan Chase that spring were offset by sales of U.S. Treasury securities from the Fed's portfolio, leaving the monetary base unchanged. Note that such sterilized actions are the equivalent of issuing a new U.S. Treasury debt to the public and using the proceeds to fund the lending, which I think quite clearly constitutes fiscal policy. It wasn't until September of 2008 that the supply of excess reserves began to increase appreciably. This expansion was accomplished through the acquisition of an expanding set of private assets by the Federal Reserve loans to banks and other financial institutions, and later mortgage-backed securities and debt issued by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. While some observers describe this phase of the Fed's response as a standard monetary expansion in the face of a deflationary threat, the Fed's own characterization often emphasized instead the intent to provide direct assistance to dysfunctional segments of the credit markets. Clearly, an equivalent expansion of reserve supply could have been achieved via purchases of U.S. Treasury securities, that is to say, without conducting credit allocation. Like the Fed, the ECB, and many other central banks have also pursued credit allocation in response to the crisis. The impulse to reallocate credit certainly reflects an earnest desire to fix perceived credit market problems that seem to be within the central bank's power to fix. My sense is that the Federal Reserve's credit policy was motivated by a sincere belief that central banks have a civic duty to alleviate significant ex post deficiencies in credit markets. But credit allocation can redirect resources from taxpayers to financial market investors, and over time can expand moral hazard and distort the allocation of capital. This implies a difficult and contentious cost-benefit calculation. But no matter how the risk how the net benefits are assessed, no matter how you judge that trade-off, central bank intervention in credit markets will have distributional consequences. Central bank credit allocation is therefore bound to be controversial. Indeed, the actions taken by the Fed over the last few years have generated a level of invective that has not been seen in a very long time. Critics have sought to exploit the resentment of credit market rescues for partisan political advantage. While it's easy to deplore politically motivated attempts to influence Fed policy, we need to recognize the extent to which some measure of antagonism is an understandable consequence of the Fed's own 
credit allocation, and credit policy initiative. The inevitable controversy surrounding central bank interventions in credit markets is one reason that many observers have long advocated keeping central banks out of the business of credit allocation. Central bank lending undermines the integrity of the fiscal appropriations process, and while U.S. fiscal policymaking may not inspire much admiration these days, it is subject to the checks and balances provided for by our Constitution. Contentious disputes about which credit market segments receive support and which do not can entangle the central bank in political conflicts that threaten the independence of monetary policymaking. The independence that modern central banks have to control the monetary policy interest rate emerged right after World War II, but it emerged in stages. The Treasury Fed Accord of 1951 freed the Federal Reserve from the wartime obligation to artificially depress the Treasury's borrowing costs. The collapse of the gold standard, we've heard about that earlier this morning, in the early 70s, and the attendant bouts of inflation, led the Fed in 1979 to assert responsibility for low inflation as the primary objective of monetary policy. The independent commitment of central banks to low inflation provides that nominal anchor that substitutes for the anchor formerly provided by the gold standard. The substantial measure of independence central banks have been given was a key element in their relative success at sustaining low inflation over the last few decades. And while there are a range of plausible views now about inflation risks going forward, I think it's clearly the case that inflation performance over the last two decades, say, was far superior to that of the 70s and early 80s. In fact, many countries have adopted frameworks that hold their central banks accountable for a, a price stability goal, while allowing them to set their interest rate policy instrument independently in pursuit of their goals. This instrument independence within an accountability framework has been critical to insulating monetary policymaking from election-related political pressures that can detract from longer-term objectives. The future of the U.S. dollar isn't a good one, according to author Kevin Dowd. Dowd is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and author of The Alchemists of Loss. He says many of the central bank policies that are keeping our economy stagnant are primarily aimed at preventing the day of reckoning for the dollar. That reckoning is coming whether central bankers want to admit it or not. Good afternoon, everybody. I thought I'd like to cheer you up with an uplifting anecdote from the Weimar hyperinflation. This concerns a gentleman who passed away and left his wealth to his two sons. The one son then did all the right things. He invested prudently in safe government bonds, and he was utterly ruined. The other son then did the opposite. He drank most of his inheritance. He wasted the rest, and then he made a fortune on the empty bottles. My point is that I think this is where we're heading, both in Europe and in the United States. Now, obviously, as we know, states have claimed the right to manipulate money for thousands of years, but all such systems were created basically to finance government expenditures, and all of them led to major economic disruption and ultimate failure. Now, I would say that the same is happening again with the fiat system that prevailed since the 1970s. Remember that the underlying principle of this system is that central banks and governments can spend what they like, free of any real constraints. You just kick the can down the road, it's not your problem. The result is that the dollar has lost some 83% or more of its purchasing power, and we now face an escalating systemic solvency crisis. And yet instead of correcting this crisis by painful solutions that are required, I think current policies are driven by a desperate attempt to postpone the day of reckoning. But as uh, somebody's already said, tomorrow eventually comes and it's here. So just briefly going through this, I think if we look at the impact of low monetary policies as an easy start, we're all familiar, I think, with the Austrian malinvestment theory, etc., etc., which requires painful restructuring to get the maladjustments out of the system. We're also aware of the fact that low interest rate policies create destabilizing asset bubbles. I would say that such intervention is wrong on principle, 
and creates a huge amount of unnecessary instability. A third effect has been almost unnoticed, a third effect of low interest rate policy, and that is to encourage the replacement of capital by labour and therefore creates high unemployment. And one can see this if one compares the current situation with low interest rates with the high interest rates of 30 years ago. 30 years ago, we saw large-scale obsolescence of the capital stock and a very robust recovery in the, the job market. So unemployment recovered very strongly. Now we have labor that is being substituted out and we see a level of long-term unemployment that is reminiscent of the 1930s. So a very serious problem. And a fourth effect is to encourage outsourcing of jobs and even innovation abroad. And turning now to the financial system, one has to say that state intervention here is profoundly damaging. Just to give one example, deposit insurance, this essentially creates a race to the bottom, culminating eventually in the collapse of the banking system. And to give you an example of the, uh, the kind of regulatory responses to this, namely capital regulation, the idea here is that we know that the banks are getting weaker, so we force them to increase their capital ratios. The fact is it just doesn't work. Just to give you an example here, take uh, the rule in Basel, the international capital rule, that says that a loan to a sovereign is a zero risk. That's still the case. So this is self-evidently nonsense, as Greece illustrates. It's also highly counterproductive because it incentivizes banks to hold sovereign government debt. And this, of course, is a key driver in the Eurozone crisis. That's just one example, but pulling them all together, we end up with a highly dysfunctional banking system that is only kept going by a combination of zero interest rates and state life support. We have a situation where the bankers no longer have any interest in the long-term survival of their own banks and are entirely fixated with their own short-term profit. So to cut to the chase, the modern investment banker's task is to construct a highly lucrative witch's brew. The ingredients of this witch's brew are accounting standards, that allow them to record fake profits using dodgy models. We have compensation practices that allow these fake profits to be distributed. We have rating agencies that are just as conflicted as the banks, use the same dodgy models, etc., etc. And of course, underlying this, we have dodgy financial engineering, which enables bankers to slice and dice risks to maximum personal advantage. And so the bottom line is we end up with a situation where the banks can extract maximum rent from the financial system and thanks to government intervention from the rest of the economy as well. It is often said that people never leave the gold standard, governments do. So getting back there requires some credible mechanics. Lawrence H. White is a professor of economics at George Mason University and a Cato Institute adjunct scholar. He argues that the move from fiat money to a gold standard is an easier transition than you may imagine. Our late friend Bill Niskanen on the topic of transition was known for the following uh, remark. I'm not sure who he stole it from, but uh, he said the, uh, the river about a mile from the uh, Niagara Falls, maybe a little bit calmer than the river about a mile above Niagara Falls, but the transition is a bitch. <laughs> we need to think about whether the transition to a gold standard would similarly be a bitch, and if so, I mean, that would count in our cost-benefit calculus of whether going back to a gold standard or forward to a gold standard is worth it. So we need to consider what's the least bitchy way, is that how I should put it? Uh, <laughs> the most cost-effective way of returning to a gold standard. So I'm going to just stipulate that we all want to return to the gold standard and ask what's the most effective way to do so? How do we get there from here? There are two transitional paths that have already been mentioned today that suggest themselves. One is to uh, legalize a parallel gold standard. Ron Paul talked about that this morning let it grow up alongside the uh, current fiat dollar regime. The more conventional path, as Dick Timberlake referred to, as the U.S. followed after the suspension of the gold standard during the Civil War, is to set a date after which the U.S. dollar is to be meaningfully defined as a certain mass of gold 
so many grams of gold per dollar or so many dollars per ounce. That today would, of course, imply converting the Federal Reserve's liabilities into gold redeemable claims. Now, we see analogs of these two kinds of transitional paths when we observe how peso-using countries have dollarized. In particular, I have in mind two cases of about 10 years ago. In Ecuador, between 1998 and 2000, a parallel, unofficial U.S. dollar standard emerged as the inflation rate rose, as it went from low double digits to high double digits to triple digits, the private sector dollarized itself. And it was so dollarized that there really wasn't much change when the government finally pulled the plug on the official currency and Ecuador became officially dollarized. By contrast, in El Salvador in 2001, the government chose to permanently lock in the dollar value of the currency, which had been on a dollar exchange rate peg by outright adopting the U.S. dollar, while inflation was still low and the local currency was still dominant. So to put it in a nutshell, when the official switch to the harder currency came in Ecuador, it was an act of necessity in the midst of a hyperinflation crisis. In El Salvador, it was an act of foresight to avoid such a crisis. And I'm going to say I hope we take the El Salvadoran path rather than the Ecuadorian path let me talk a little about allowing a parallel gold standard. Clearing away the legal barriers to a parallel gold standard is fairly straightforward. It can be done without immediately altering existing financial institutions. Ron Paul this morning mentioned his uh, H.R. 1098, the Free Competition and Currency Act of 2011, which represents one way to do that. It would ensure the enforceability of contracts denominated in units other than fiat dollars by removing legal tender status from Federal Reserve notes and Treasury coins. Secondly, it would remove taxes on gold and silver coins that Federal Reserve notes do not face. And third, it would remove sections of the U.S. Code that have been used to criminalize the victimless activity of privately minting distinctive pieces of metal intended to circulate as money. And whatever you think of uh, Bernard Van Nothaus's enterprise of trying to compete with the Federal Reserve system, issuing a silver-based currency, I think uh, the injustice of making that activity illegal is pretty uh, patent. Now, if these sorts of measures seem unprecedented, you should note that Federal Reserve notes didn't become legal tender until 1933. Bank of England notes are not legal tender today in Scotland or Northern Ireland, where private bank notes, also not legal tender, actually predominate in the uh, currency circulation. You might also note that in Switzerland, the purchase and sale of gold is not subject to taxes, such as value-added taxes or capital gains taxes. Now, I think further legal changes would be necessary to make a parallel gold standard really viable, namely changes to allow citizens who adopt the parallel gold standard to have access to gold-denominated banking services. I mean, paying using physical gold coins is kind of inconvenient. The world evolved well beyond that when it was on a gold standard. So banking services like the issue of gold-redeemable checking accounts, gold-redeemable paper currency notes, would be important. So either existing bank holding companies would have to be free to operate separate gold-denominated subsidiaries right, with their own balance sheets, or else new gold-based institutions would have to be free to open. And the case for doing these things, for leveling the playing field between the fiat dollar and other potential monetary standards, rests on the you know, simple fact that consumers are better served by competition than by monopoly. Keeping alternatives to the fiat dollar at a legal disadvantage limits the options of American consumers, uh, makes them worse off in that respect. Now, the option to use something other than the fiat dollar isn't nearly as important when the dollar is experiencing low inflation as it, of course, will be if inflation becomes more pronounced. So we shouldn't really expect a mass switchover just from the legalization of a parallel gold standard as long as inflation remains low. So in that sense, it's in the Fed's hands how much of a use people make of this option. And there's, a, of course, a strong incumbency advantage to an established monetary standard. There's a network property to a monetary standard. The greater the number of people using a particular monetary standard, the more advantageous it is for you to use it as well. Or to put it another way, you want to get paid in the stuff that other people want to get paid in. But we do see spontaneous dollarizations in cases where the peso becomes unstable. 
right? So like the benefit of using dollars in a peso economy, the benefit of using gold in a dollar economy will increase as the fiat dollar's inflation rate becomes higher and more variable. And that's when it, if U.S. inflation returns to double digits, U.S. citizens would find it very helpful to have an alternative currency network available already up and running, even if on a, a small scale. That kind of potential competition might, who knows, might even incentivize the Fed to keep inflation low. Let me turn to reestablishing a gold definition for the U.S. dollar. The fact that there is this network property to a monetary standard supports the case for not simply legalizing a parallel gold standard, but also reestablishing a gold definition for the U.S. dollar. Right? If network effects mean that switching over piecemeal in an uncoordinated fashion isn't going to happen until inflation really gets out of hand, there's a strong case for avoiding that kind of transitional crisis by making a coordinated switch over before high inflation takes hold, as I said, following the Salvadoran model rather than the Ecuadorian model. Now, when we consider the establishment of a gold dollar more than 40 years after the closure of the gold window, we have to pick a new parity. I think it's pretty widely recognized that it would be foolish to try to relink the dollar to gold at $20.67 an ounce, or even at $35 an ounce, or even at $42.22 an ounce. It would be foolish, of course, because the U.S. price level has risen more than fivefold since 1971. The real price of gold has gone up in addition, so $42.22 an ounce, or anything less, implies a massive deflation a deflation not anticipated in current nominal contracts. Britain's uh, painful deflation after the First World War, when they tried to go back on the old parity, despite having massively inflated the price level, you know, serves as a warning to us. What happened, the purchasing power of gold at the old parity was much lower in Britain than in the rest of the world, so gold flowed out of Britain, and pound sterling values faced inescapable downward pressure. It was a vicious deflation. I think that point's widely appreciated. Nobody advocates returning to such a low parity. But by similar logic, it would be foolish to declare a new parity of, say, $8,000 an ounce, five times the current price. The result in that case would be a sharp transitional inflation and a very expensive importation, not an exportation like Britain suffered, but an importation of gold from the rest of the world. Right? Gold would rush in to take advantage of the fact that for one ounce of gold, you could get $8,000 which buys a lot more at current prices than an ounce of gold buys. And that would go on until the influx of gold raised the U.S. price level to 8000 to the point that $8,000 no longer buys more than one ounce of gold. So we'd like to avoid a transitional inflation or deflation. And the way to do that, if you follow the logic of what I'm saying, is to establish a parity something close to the current dollar price of gold. And I say close because there will be some change in the real demand for monetary gold following the stabilization of the gold value of the dollar. But there are two forces at work here. On the one hand, with lower expected inflation, the cost of holding non-interest-bearing money will be lower, and so the real demand to hold money in the form of non-interest-bearing balances, that is, currency or checking accounts that don't pay interest, will rise. On the other hand, with the risk of dollar inflation dramatically reduced, the demand for gold coins to hedge against dollar inflation, right, the demand for Krugerrands and Eagles and bullion, that will fall dramatically, right? the mirror image of the way it's risen in recent years. I think that latter effect is likely to dominate because hedging demand is the main reason why the real price of gold is now higher than it was when the U.S. abandoned the gold standard, the last vestiges of gold redeemability in 1971. Okay, so suppose we think about going back to gold at $1,600 an ounce or something like it. Does the U.S. Treasury own enough gold to do that? And the answer is yes. At a market price of $1,600 per fine troy ounce, the U.S. government's 261.5 million ounces of gold, assuming it's all there, <laughs> I realize Fort Knox hasn't been audited in a while, those Gold holdings are worth $418.4 billion. Is that big enough? Well, look, current required bank reserves are only $83 billion. So it's plenty compared to that. Or look at it another way, $418.4 billion is just about 20% of current M1, the sum of currency and checking account balances. 
right? 20% is a more than healthy reserve ratio by historical standards. So combined with the likelihood that hedging demand will shrink by more than banks' reserve demand will grow with larger demand for M1 balances, I expect that denationalization and remonetization of the U.S. bullion stock at the current price would actually allow the U.S. economy to export some excess gold. Uh, there'll be a small transitional windfall for U.S. citizens getting imported goods and services in exchange for the excess gold. So expeditiously establishing a new gold definition for the U.S. dollar requires the following two steps. One, withdraw most of the $1.6 trillion in non-required reserves that banks have accumulated since September 2009 by eliminating interest on reserves and by selling the mortgage-backed securities that the Fed acquired in QE1, plus enough treasuries, to bring the total of bank reserves down to the value of the U.S. government's gold stock, somewhere around $400 billion. Second, redeem Federal Reserve liabilities with the U.S. government's gold at the then current market price. That would put us on a, a gold standard with plenty of reserves. Now, I say plenty of reserves, assuming that 20% is plenty by historical standards of fractional reserve banking systems. But there is, of course, the point of view, which has been mentioned in Ron Paul's talk and in other places today, there is the idea uh, that we should establish 100% reserves behind M1. I mentioned $8,000 as a figure a minute ago. $8,000 is about what you get if you divide current M1 by the stock of gold ounces held by the Fed. Some economists who favor 100% reserves for currency and checking accounts have offered this as an approach to finding the new parity, just perform this division, never mind what the world price of gold is. But it's so much above the world price of gold that, as I said, it implies a huge influx of gold for the rest of the world, a large loss of U.S. wealth in exchange for the imported gold, and a sharp transitional inflation. I think we can do better than that. To put it another way, to establish 100% gold backing for currency and checking accounts would be very expensive. At $1,600 per ounce, the difference between M1, which is about $2.1 trillion, and the current stock of gold held by the federal government, about $400 billion, as I said, well, you can do the math. That's $1.7 trillion. That's a pretty expensive uh, proposition. American taxpayers would have to buy $1.7 trillion worth of gold. Something else about 100% reserves should be mentioned, which is they make it impossible to have what was historically the most popular sort of currency, namely circulating redeemable paper notes. If you're going to put all money on a warehouse basis, it's impossible to have circulating bearer anonymous currency because the warehouse doesn't know who has it. They can't charge storage fees. And gold warehouses have to fund their operations through storage fees. So not clear how you would have a circulating uh, warehouse receipts. What about the central bank? Well, because the nation's stock of money becomes endogenous under a gold standard, no monetary policy is needed. And as I like to do, I quote Alan Greenspan on this when he was on The Daily Show. He said, you didn't need a central bank when we were on the gold standard. All the automatic things occurred because people would buy and sell gold and the market would do what the Fed does now. Okay, not put exactly the best way, but what he's saying is we didn't need a Federal Reserve in uh, 1913 to manage the stock of money. And, of course, the Federal Reserve Act didn't actually conceive of the Fed as a day-by-day -day manager of the money supply. The gold standard was supposed to manage the money supply. If you retain a central bank to manage the money supply, you actually undermine the automatic operation of the gold standard. You damage the credibility of the dollar. You undermine the pre-commitment to the rules of the game because you've established a discretionary actor with the power to void the rules of the game. So it does more harm than good if you understand the logic of pre-commitment, the importance of pre-commitment to sound money. Central banks invariably uh, face political pressures to pursue monetary policies inconsistent with redemption of gold at a fixed rate. And on the question of a dual versus single mandate that came up earlier today, the European Central Bank has a single mandate. It has a very strongly worded constitution that makes price stability a single mandate. It hasn't held up. When push came to shove and the European Central Bank was asked to monetize the debts of the uh, Greece and uh, Spain and Portugal and Ireland, it's been caving in and inflation in Europe is just as high as in the U.S. It's running around 4% year over year. 
So when a central bank runs a policy inconsistent with maintaining the gold standard, as it will be pressured to do, the historical evidence is that the gold standard gives. By contrast, a system of competing private banks issuing gold redeemable liabilities faces legal and competitive constraints, and those kind of banks actually have a better track record at maintaining convertibility than central banks do. What we call the classical gold standard, it's sometimes forgotten, function quite well without a central bank in many countries, like the United States, like Canada, like Australia, like New Zealand, like South Africa, and particularly in Canada, which didn't weaken its banking system with ill-advised legal restrictions. Even in the United States, which had severe financial panics, those panics could have been avoided if we had followed the Canadian banking model. Canada didn't have those panics. So I blame those on the bank regulatory system, not on the gold standard. But even given all that, the business cycle wasn't worse under that system than it has been under the Fed's watch. Uh, footnote to a paper uh, George Selgin and Bill Estraps and I have uh, in process. Do we need a central bank for some other purposes under a gold standard? Well, we don't need a central bank to issue currency. Private bank notes form the majority of circulating currency before the Federal Reserve Act. The Fed has some other useful functions that can be returned to private clearinghouse associations as they were before the Federal Reserve Act. Clearing and settlement of payments, enforcement of membership standards for solvency and liquidity, and conceivably, uh, lender of last resort operations in the sense of organizing loans of reserves from banks that have enough to banks that are running low in uh, unusual cases. So I think uh, it's a pretty straightforward case, but let me contrast what I'm saying to, to something the journalist Martin Wolf recently wrote. He said uh, the obvious form of a contemporary gold standard would be a direct link between base money and gold. Base money would be 100% gold backed. The central bank would then become a currency board in gold with the unit of account defined in terms of a given weight of gold. Well, you can have the definition without having a currency board that is 100% reserve arrangement. And actually, although central bank notes are base money today, under a gold standard, they're not. Only coined gold and bullion is base money under a gold standard. Notes in circulation are redeemable liabilities of their issuers. They're not actual bank reserves. They're not potential bank reserves. And although a currency board is less likely than a central bank to undermine the gold standard, there isn't any need for it either. Surprisingly, Wolf actually recognizes that it's wasteful to hold 100% reserve in a bank if depositors don't need their money almost all the time, but he doesn't draw the obvious conclusion, which is that a currency board in gold is less efficient than fractional reserve banking under the gold standard. So the banking system uh, would be more robust than he suspects, uh, given the historical evidence I've cited. And... We want to return, if we want to return to a gold standard, it should be one that doesn't unnecessarily uh, require expensive gold uh, holdings and uh, doesn't introduce a central bank able to avoid the rules of the game. And of course, even better if we take on the task of reforming our banking system so that it doesn't rely on legal restrictions and doesn't rely on subsidies and guarantees. A brand new publication from the Cato Institute has just been released and is now available for purchase. Cato Papers on Public Policy is an in-depth, imaginative new research journal focusing on key economic and public policy matters. The articles are written by leading national experts and edited by Jeffrey A. Myron, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. You can buy your copy today at catostore.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.